You're listening to Shrink the Virus, a weekly podcast that explores the psychology of everyday life during the pandemic, hosted by two psychiatrists, Steve Allen and Rob Seltzer. Shrink the Virus is brought to you by Melbourne independent community media organisation Triple R. Check out the Shrink the Virus podcast page on the Triple R website and on Facebook. And don't forget, you can financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber at any time. More details at rrr.org.au. Hi, and welcome to Shrink the Virus with me, Rob Seltzer, and my very good friend, Stefano Ellen. <laughs> He's become Italian. <laughs> I was going to go Greek, Stavros Ellen. Stavros, I can see that. Well, you'd be Istvan in Hungarian, I think. Um, this is uh, Shrink the Virus, and of course, it is a show about uh, the pandemic and the sociological, health, economic uh, components of that. Today is... what day is it today, Stephen? Friday the 26th of June. At 11.19pm. Uh, AM, sorry, AM. Things may change. Uh, when you're listening to this, because the podcast comes out in uh, two days' time. We're not going to prattle on a lot, as we usually do in the intro, where Steve and I come to fisticuffs over our different ideas about things. Just because... assume we hate each other and we've had a fight already and let's just <laughs> move on. Right. Take it as given. Take it as read. That's right. We've had a Barney. Um, we, we've just finished interviewing uh, Nellie Thomas, who is just a fantastic social commentator, comedian, mother, Lots of things, and she's going to talk about all those things uh, pretty soon. How about but, I intro her? Tell you a little say, bit about her. I was, I was waiting for you to look at me. <laughs> I was waiting for you to look at me so I could throw to you. I was looking at my notes. Uh, look, I've known Nelly for years, and uh, and Rob and I have interviewed Nelly before on Three Triple R Radiotherapy. Um, Nelly's just a delight. Um, yeah. She performed stand up comedy around Australia and the world for oh God. It must have been close to twenty years. And uh, last year she tried. Oh, in the last few years, really, she traded the stage more for a quiet life of an author, professional MC, keynote presenter, media personality. I she does ABC radio a lot. I've been on her show and I think that might be where I originally met her. I can't can't quite recall. And uh, you'll also see her a lot in the press. She does all sorts of stuff. She's just started a new podcast that she's going to talk about during the show. What's it called again? People, Place and Thing. People, Place, Person? People, Place. In fact, I'm going to look it up because I've been listening it's, to it's it. What so it's what a noun is because yeah. it came from the, uh, oh, we'll let her talk about it, but it's a great idea. Ah, like, here it is. I've got it on my iPod because I've listened to the first few episodes yeah. and it is fantastic. It's person, place and thing. And she gets um, some sort of person who's known in the media and gets them to talk about their favourite person, their favourite place and their pl- oh, and their favourite thing. Not necessarily favourite, but something that's important. It's a really great format. Mm. Anyway, let's. Um, that's enough introing Nelly. Let's slide straight into the interview and welcome Nelly to our little Zoom podcast independent melbourne radio three triple r g'day nelly oh hello fellas nice g'day, to nelly. You. hey thanks for joining us bright and early on a friday we're recording this on a friday morning what is this about 10 30 bright and early mate i've been up since five <laughs> not <laughs> really talking about five a.m has got yeah five o'clock it's my daughter's 13th birthday today happy birthday to her and, oh, uh, wait a sec, I'll on. say it for Rob. Muzzle tof. Yeah. <laughs> He's got the accent almost right. Muzzle tof. <laughs> I, I actually got up early to cook her breakfast. That's one oh. explanation. 
Um, well, what, what did you what did you cook her like a five course cordon bleu <laughs> <laughs> breakfast for me? Even on kids' birthdays, is you know is bacon and eggs on toast. Half an well, hour, it's twenty minutes. Thirteen. It's a big one. Yeah, yeah fair right. enough. Some muffins. Plus, you can't have a party because we're in like oh, right. you know Corona Central over here in Reservoir. So you know it's a shit show, mate. I are you in one of the? Effort. Are you in one of the hotspots? Oh, yes. We, it's the only time Reservoir's ever been on the map, as far as I can tell. Um, we're in the news. It's very exciting. <laughs> Did you get a door knock? Did someone come around and inform oh, you about stuff? No. My mum rang me this morning. My mum lives in Western Australia in the middle of nowhere, and she yeah. rang this morning hysterical because she yeah. had heard that Reservoir was one of the hot spots. And is someone at the door? Is someone at the door? I'm like, no one's at the door, mum. If they do come to the door... What we'll do is we'll take the test. That's all that's going to happen. It really is an interesting approach, that, that the government's saying, I think Reservoir is one of the areas, that they're going to try and screen 50% of the population by door knocking and basically just screening everyone. I mean, that is just, yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm really quite surprised at the, we touched on this last week, I'm surprised at the extent of the concern over 20 or 30 cases a day. Now, obviously, I'm not an expert and I don't want to pretend to be an epidemiologist, but it seems to me that with any sort of virus going through the community like this, with no vaccine, that clearly having basic things open, we're anticipating somewhere between, I don't know, 10 and 100 cases a day for the next year. And a whole lot of us are going to get sick. What we're really hoping for is few deaths, hardly any deaths. But, you know, we're, we're going to have some... I'm really surprised that they're going so hard. And I, my gut feeling is I'm missing something. There's some bit of the intellectual epidemiological logic that I'm missing because this to me seems like bugger all and i know i'm going to get people piling on me but well i'm going to pile on you because yeah, i think so what, you go first nelly what, what, what are you missing i think you are and i first of all let me say i've listened to all the episodes of this podcast and and even though i'm a comedian and people expect me to joke can i say hand on heart i bloody love it and one of the reasons i love it is because of steve's fantastic optimism and it has helped me, genuinely helped me, listening to sort of calm my own anxiety and my nerves over the weeks. However, here comes the <laughs> I think at this moment, and this sounds like a strange thing to say, but I think the optimism is unwarranted at this moment. Like I think it is actually another thing that you say, Steve, actually both of you say, which I have trusted you and adhered to, is listen to the experts Yep. And so if an epidemiologist is, is on Radio National or wherever they are saying that curve, you know, that number, whatever that number is, is above one and this is time to worry, well, I'm going to worry. Oh, and, uh, uh, sorry, Rob, you go. No, I'm going to jump in and apologies. Somebody set up their leaf blower like right outside my window. So that whining <laughs> you hear isn't me, it's a machine. Your um, whining will come later. <laughs> I'm going to whine right now. No, mate, I think you might be missing the point. This, this spreads exponentially. Mm. And so that when you go from 1 to 2 to 15 to 30, you worry that it's next going to be 80 or a couple of hundred. I was just speaking to my sister who lives in Israel, and she was saying about two weeks ago, they were down to six in the whole country. Um, the population is probably seven or eight million. And now they're at 500, like, you know, not, not too much down the track. The worry is the exponential sh spread. Uh, See, so, yeah. yeah, I hear I hear yeah. what you're saying, and I will be suitably chastened. But I'm chastened. still, I'm still just, 
You know, right from the start, one of the things I kept saying is we're trying to balance health advice, economic advice, and our basic concerns about government getting too carried away with their power and uh, locking us down. And right now, part of me is saying... Where are the epidemiologists backing this up? I'm hearing a hell of a lot of crap from government, but you know, I'm wanting to hear from the horse's mouth that these number of cases. So, like Rob's frowning, everyone. For those people who are on the podcast, he's frowning, shaking his head. He's leaning back in the chair and he's very mad at me um, because I still see it as, in terms of total numbers, it's like one in eighty thousand people have got the damn virus, and. And don't forget, in Australia, our outcomes of the virus are fantastic at this stage. You know, virtually everyone's getting better. Nah, nah, Um, because Rob looks like he's going to have a triple bypass if I don't intervene. Um, You yourself, my friend, you, my learned doctor friend, have said to me numerous occasions, both on this podcast and in other settings, that you trust Brett Sutton. Yep. That you trust Annalise Van Diemen that they have good advice from epidemiologists. If they're worried, we need to be worried. Okay, and I'm going to follow the advice 100%. Don't get me wrong, because that is my number one guiding principle. But I still reserve the right to be slightly suspicious at different times. And this is about as high as my suspicions got in the last three months about, you know, about... um, being suspicious, but I'm still going to follow the advice to an absolute T, especially social distancing, number of people's in room, or, you know, the basic advice that people seem to forget on a daily basis. Roberto? I, I, I think you hit the nail on the head, um, Nellie, that, you know, I've known Steve since he's, since we've been 15. He is an optimist. That's one of his most endearing qualities. He's just, you know, he can turn any negative situation into a positive and you walk away thinking, yeah, this is really positive, you know. Now my cat just died or, you know, I just you know, just lost a thousand bucks. Oh, that's what fantastic. A, what oh, a great fun. opportunity to experience poverty and to get a new cat. No, in fact, I remember I lost my sunglasses. It was about last year. And Steve goes, great opportunity to buy new sunglasses. I think, yeah. You know, so he's an optimist. He's an optimist. And he's a cynical optimist. Mm. And I can see where you're coming from, Steve. But like we've always said, we have to trust experts. We really do. They don't. Brett Sutton doesn't have some vested interest. He's got, his interest is our health. And when he gets concerned... We should be concerned. Oh, Rob, Rob, preach. What I mean, one of the things that's driving me mad, there's many things. Like, I'm completely off the Richter at the moment. Like, I'm jovial, but it is a kind of manic joviality that you are experiencing right now. Like, this week has sent me over the edge. But one of the things that is driving me up the wall is this kind of, I don't know, there seems to be a mood among my friends at least who are, you know, relatively sort of educated, whatever, whatever, kind of like, oh, you know, Dan Andrews is acting like a daddy or Brett Sutton just wants me to not go to, you know, play cricket. It's like why would these people wake up in the morning and think <laughs> Nellie and Reservoir shouldn't go to the shops? Like they have no, I'm with you, Steve, like you've got to be, I'm, um, You've got to be very sceptical about overreach and power and all that sort of stuff. But there's also a basic question to start with. Why would they want me to be tested if it wasn't going to help? I agree entirely with that. And so the bottom line is got to follow the advice. Um, But you know what? You touched on something that I've noticed this week too. I've had this week... 
I've been particularly cranky all week. I've just yeah. been a little bit shitty all week. And early in the week, I was thinking to myself, you know, I was trying to, I was reflecting on why do I feel so shitty. I, I just felt angry about the whole world this week. You know, one of yeah. those weeks where every human in the world's annoying me and I was trying to think of what is the word for someone who hates everyone? You know, is it a misanthrope? Is that the word? Yes. Yeah. And I was thinking to myself, God, I'm like that this week. And I was wondering why. And I was, you know, reflecting on maybe I'm just sort of over, I'm not over it sounds pathetic but i'm just it feels at the moment like we fought really hard to get through it's like we finished this great marathon for the last three months fighting really hard and then someone said oh by the way did i mention to you there's another five marathons to go and i I was wondering what are you why have you felt shitty all week well i think it's that sort of stuff i mean i think it's you know this is bizarre for me to say to two qualified psychiatrists rob's not qualified (laughs) <laughs> well, I certainly am not. But I notice among other people and certainly in myself as well that I'm starting to do the bargaining kind of stuff again. Oh, so, you know, oh, when right, we first yeah. went down, when we yeah. first went into restrictions, you start to, but, well, isn't it okay to do this? Or you're trying mm. to find a way around it. Mm. Yesterday I was supposed to see a friend that I haven't seen since January and, of course, my suburb was named as one of the hot spots and she was okay with me catching up. I spent the whole day debating whether or not it was okay if I mm. saw her outside and we were mm. two metres apart. Mm. And I ended up not going. So I experienced both the energy drain of trying to make the decision about whether or not it was reasonable to go and then the profound disappointment uh, of not going. And that's just one example mm that all of us are going through every single day of trying to weigh up these decisions, arguing with ourselves, processing the information. You know, I saw another example. I saw two mums, bless them, uh, at school pick up, greet each other with a kiss and a hug. And I'm like, I don't want to be the corona police, but I'm freaking out. Oh, I saw that during the week too. And I got I got corona copped this week too. So we had a whole corona copped. Yes, someone, you know, went mad at me for being a corona cop. So I got corona copped. You were the cop. Yeah. So I had, you know, we had a number of people in my department asking about how many people can be in the tea room at lunchtime, the kitchen. And so, and I spoke to my coat, the other director who shares the office space, and we came up with a very sensible rule, you know, two in the lounge area, two at the kitchen table, and then two people coming in and out using it. You know, fit, we measured the room, did it all, sent around an email to all staff. I'm putting the sign up on the door and there's three people in one of the, in the kitchen area. And so, you know, super nice. I said, oh, hi guys, can I just, you know, remind you that we can really only have two at the table at any one time. I'm just sticking it up the guidelines. You know, we sent it around yesterday. So, you know, unfortunately, one of you is going to have to pop out and eat your lunch in one of the other areas. You know, and I got the whole, you know, I got the frown and oh, for goodness sakes. We're oh. 1.5 metres apart. What, what are you worried? Oh. Well, I know you're 1.5 metres apart, but we can actually only have four people in this room. And, you know, people want to come in and out and use the fridge. So only two. And, you know, so I explain it, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, and I could understand, I could see myself being the person sitting at the table. You know, oh. so, I, you know, I could honestly, I knew that if I was sitting at the table, I would have been the one bitching saying, oh, for goodness sake, Instead, you know, I can see both sides. You can play both those roles. We could could all play both those roles and we're switching in and out of those roles and it's really tiring. There must be a way of of preempting that conversation, like saying, I don't want to be a corona cop, but da-da-da-da-da-da. I did all that. Yeah, Yeah, I've done. I said, yeah. Hey, so, Nelly, you know, you... um, What's been the impact of you of the whole shutdown and everything? Are you, you know, work-wise, family-wise, what's going on in your life? 
Uh, well, I'm feeling rather omniscient, if that's the right word. Say the, say the word again. Omniscient. Never heard uh, of it. All powerful, oh, all seeing, all godlike. Omniscient. Omniscient. Good um, on you. Yeah. I, I, I feel like that every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I've got evidence. Yeah, fair enough. He's so, he's so omniscient, he doesn't even need to know the word. He doesn't even know. Um, so, Rob, for you, for background and for, for listeners, about a few years ago, my daughter was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. And so, you know, the last few years have been a shit show and there's no need for me to go into the detail. But I kept working, you know, through that, even though her needs were, were very high. And then toward probably the beginning of last year, the wheels started to fall off, as anyone who's a carer will relate to. I just mm. couldn't keep all the balls in the air. So by the end of the year, I decided to well, retire or at least take a year off, um, have an extended break from work. So my point is this sort of crisis, all the things that corona has meant for most of my colleagues and, and for me, in a way I faced it last year. You know, the sort of the mm. loss of income, the isolation, the uncertainty. I mean, anyone who's got a, a child with a chronic illness or indeed has a chronic illness themselves know how hard it is when you don't know when mm. they'll get better, mm. if they'll get better, what that mm. will look like. Um, so all of the things, it's been an interesting experience. It's sort of like I'm watching it in, in the rearview mirror. Mm. Um, in a bizarre mm. way, it's been quite validating because... Not that I for a second want my friends and colleagues to, to lose their shit, but I just thought, to be perfectly honest, I just thought I was a bit weak, you know, whereas now when I see the impact of corona isolation and the uncertainty and all the other things I've just named on friends and colleagues and how impactful it is, I go, oh, okay, that's why it was so hard. Mm. That's why it is so hard. Mm. So it's, it's a bit of a different, it's a strange experience for me, to be honest. You know, I've heard a number of my, you know, I work at Penamac, I've heard a number of my cancer patients say the same. You oh, know, really? Well, yeah, just because health, you know, they've seen, you know, healthy people know what it's like to face the uncertainty of having cancer now. You know, so they've seen a lot yes. of their friends have a new um, understanding of what they're going through mm. because everyone's facing, I could get, a, you know, mm. everyone's facing a worse prognosis right now, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And even just the just the logistical things, you know, when it first started and people kind of going, oh, my income's halved or it's disappeared or I don't have the validation of, you know, up until last year I was on ABC Radio, for example. Yeah. Like there's a lot of cultural capital in that, you know, you're the girl in the room that people know, all that. I mean, who cares? It's only ego. But on the other hand, you go, no, people actually do derive validation from work. Mm. Like, I'm not insane. That is hard to give up. <laughs> you know? It's um, so much a part of, your, of one's identity. Yeah, it, uh, it, can, be. it yeah. Can, think, can be. It can be. Yeah. Do you think we've had this massive, you know, I, I keep saying it, and I don't know if this is the right way to describe it, but it's like humanity's had a slap across the face and been told, hey, you're not the best uh, organism on the planet anymore. Um, you know, you there is an existential threat. You know, it is real. It's not just something that scientists and philosophers write about or do podcasts about. You know, these are actually real threats. And so in a sense, we've all taken a slap to our ego because we've all, you know, got our beautiful grand plans about what our retirement's going to look like and what our next 10 years are going to look like and what our career goals are and all of a sudden we've all been told it doesn't matter how good you think you are 
it might be out of your it, it might be beyond your reach not only is it beyond your reach uh might be beyond re- your reach it is beyond your reach and i think i've wavered between since becoming a, a carer but also especially in coronavirus and i've heard you two talk about this I've wavered between what I think of as a sort of, I don't know, I'm an atheist, but a a Buddhist kind of approach of, you know, lean in, accept what is, don't fight, you know, don't let your ego take control, Um, you can't fight the wind, you know, all of that acceptance stuff. And then on the other side going, no, there's a reason as humans we avoid this shit. There's a reason I'm sitting in the shed, you know, drinking gin and having secret cigarettes from my children. You know, like this is part of being human is that we cannot sit with existential dread all the time. You know, can I just... Sorry, Rob, I just I just want to pick up on one other point there that is interesting to me, because being an atheist also, I've thought to myself a few times in the last couple of months when surrounded and bathed in uncertainty about what the world is about, that, you know... Uh, that oh, I can sort of see, you know, when people provide you with a lot of answers. So when I turn on those news bulletins in the morning and hear, um, you know, Brett Sutton and um, and uh, Dan Andrews, and you know, give me a little bit of certainty about where things are happening. I can see why people love going to that church or synagogue or whatever it is, mosque, and hearing, you know, this is where we're up to. This is where humanity is up to. This, you know, you can. It's sort of I'd I'd forgotten why. I've forgotten it's, the attraction. I mean, we, we, kind of, we kind of talked about it a bit in a previous show, Nelly, which mm. I, I think you're, you're referring to is this, that human beings, one of the things we find most difficult to tolerate is uncertainty. Yes. And so, so much a part of our lives is seeking out certainty where there really may not be some. Mm. So, as you say, just the uncertainty of so many aspects of this is is hard to swallow. Our, our entire lives are built on a sort of house of cards of denial, to be honest. <laughs> you know, that that is the, the thing that I've learned, and not just in corona, but over the last few years, is kind of, you know, you think when you go through, in my case, it's a, a kid with an illness, but it could be any number of things. People go through things all the time. You think someone will come in and make it all all right. Yeah. Yeah. And guess what? They don't. Yeah. <laughs> like, they yeah. don't. Yeah. So it's about kind of facing that. I, as I said, I waver between facing that and I'm a very pragmatic person and take care of business and get on with it and there's kids in Syria who are starving and you're, you know, you're fine and then the other side going, I'm just not coping. And you know, and, what, the, and you know what the take-home message is of all this? We're all reflecting on our lives and we're all going to end up better per- people because of it. There's my you little think? optimistic so twist. It is true, though. We're going to, you know, I mean, obviously people are going to die, but we're going to be, end up so much stronger through this. You know, I really hope, and I can only speak from, from my point of view because there's so many different things that could change out of this, but I really do hope that anyone listening and even people who aren't listening in the future, I hope they do make that connection, particularly um, with carers that they understand that when this is all over, for many carers, and let's face it, it's gendered, most of them are women, most Mm. of them are older, Mm. that this doesn't stop with corona, Mm. that this isolation and the income and and Mm. all of the other stuff is not going to end when a vaccine's found unless a vaccine's also found for for cancer Mm. and MS Mm. and, you know, Mm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I do hope, and in a weird way, Steve, I think I mentioned this to you, I remember thinking, because I used to work in welfare before comedy and I worked with a lot of ex-prisoners, and one of the things that really shut me 
was people would say, oh, you know, prison's so fun. Like, it's so fun. You know, they get their foxtail and, they, <laughs> you know, within two days of being at home, in your own home, often with your own family, with plenty of food, with Netflix, with all, everyone's breaking down. Mm. All right, and now you're going to tell me you could do 10 years in prison mm. or in yeah. isolation or, mm. you know. So I hope we get that. Um, um, today... I'm not optimistic about that because it's been a rough week. Um, but I hope you're right, Steve. I really do. Yeah, I hope I am too. I'm trying to convince myself as much as anyone else right now. I'm on that train. I'm, I'm with you, Steve, though, and uh, Anelia. I think that that ultimately through this experience, people hopefully will have a better idea of what it's like for other people who are experiencing this in an ongoing way, you know, this uncertainty and... and uh, I guess, having to look after other people in their lives too. But I don't know. I mean, I'm I just, being optimistic as well. Do you want me to be the pessimist or do you want to stay on the optimism train? Because, you know, I can jump between both. I'm We're open to all opinions be in who this you podcast. Are. Be who you I are. just noticed when our restrictions started to ease, and I think the, the biggest um, turning point, I think psychologically in my community, was when school went back. Yeah. That's when people started to relax, um, myself included. That's when people became less vigilant. And I noticed in others and in myself um, a, a very rapid return to old habits. So things that I'd previously been, you know, swearing, I've learned this from Corona and I will continue <laughs> yeah. this, you know, for the rest of my life. Yeah, give me about three or four days and, you know, I'm pretty much back to doing things that I was already doing. So, I mean, I, I guess maybe it depends on the personality and also on how long this goes on for as yeah. to what kind of lasting effects it has. If you look at structurally, for example, wouldn't it be incredible if universal basic income came out of this, and which is really what JobKeeper is, although not mm. extended to everybody. Um, but I think we both, all of us know that in 12 months, 18 months, two years, or even sooner, there will be, hey, we really can't afford this. and mm. uh, We really can't afford the increases to the safety net. They all have to be wound back. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I'm being such a deputy down. Yeah. No, 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 it's fine. And I think that's part of the uncertainty. We don't know what's going to happen you know, yeah. health-wise, economically, all, all those kind of areas. But just to switch tack for a, yeah. um, for a moment, Nelly, um, now that you've kind of taken a sidestep from the arts, which was your life for a, for a long time, mm. do you, can you kind of see from uh, the periphery, I guess, a bit, what's been happening to the arts since corona i mean do you can you give us your impressions of, of the impact of corona on the arts um i think a few different things have been happening i mean one of them is i've noticed a lot of particularly with comedians who are obviously we're mostly stage based we're live performance based so that has been decimated you know much like musicians absolutely decimated um and one of the things i've noticed friends struggling with is the lack of interaction with, with an audience. So one of my friends, for example, who's a comedian in the States, um, she was really losing it. This is someone who gigs, especially in the States, you gig, you know, a couple of times a day. Like you'd have a, a gig on every night. So this is her life. And until she started to get the Zoom thing going and she could perform even via Zoom and hear the feedback of people, like, up until that point, she was really not coping psychologically. Once she got a bit of audience back, I think it's evened out. 
Um, but I think there's a, that's just one example of many. Yeah. Um, do, do you think, just, just on that point, um, uh, you know, Steve and I have talked about this. We do a lot of teaching and I do a lot of teaching via Zoom. And what I've noticed is, you know, the jokes that I crack, you know, normally, the, the tried and true jokes, they don't get a laugh over Zoom. Whereas, you know, when I was in the room and people felt compelled to laugh, there'd be lots of laughter because they, you know, they want to make me feel good. But in the comfort of their own home, people just really don't care about making me feel good. Oh, Has that happened oh, too with performance? You know? Oh, for, absolutely. I mean, I think, honestly, I'm, I'm hesitant to say this, although hopefully it won't have any influence on anyone else, but I couldn't think of anything worse than performing or being in an audience via Zoom. Um, I've tried both. And for me, it's about being in the room. You know, part of, I think, a good performer is emotional intelligence, is being able to feel the room, being able to read the room. And if you're not there, I, I just don't know how you do that. You know, I grew up, as you know, you know, my dad's an actor. In fact, I've just come from having coffee with him this morning. And I observed many times him coming home from, he was a stage actor doing plays. And he came home and it looked very much to me as I grew up and did medicine like he'd taken heroin or as an amphetamine at least he always came home on an absolute high had yep. to have a few drinks couldn't go to sleep till about one or two in the morning often yep. would then of course he'd hang out with the actors after the show too and oh. you know they're all on this high just over and over and over and over and over again and it, and i always used to see the similarities between that and drugs you know it was oh. like this natural high that people talk about and so it doesn't surprise me at all that someone who has their their high ripped out from under them all of a sudden is going to oh. go through a good month of withdrawals. I mean, oh. you know, maybe I'm dragging the analogy too far, but, you know, it's going to be, take a significant amount of time. You know, you would just be, your body would be so used to that energy beforehand, the excitement beforehand, the feeling of success, the accolades, you know, they are so, you know, we get them hardly at all, Rob, you and I, because, you know, teachers, you just don't get it much. But, um, you know, when you do get it, it feels so damn good. I just must be oh, absolutely. Great. And in that particular person's case, and this would apply to, you know, a few different performers I know, um, she doesn't drink, you know, she doesn't smoke, she doesn't take drugs, she doesn't, like, this is her thing. This is, this is her high. Mm. So to take that away, to give you a contrast, maybe a more positive example, though, a good friend of mine, a local friend, well-known comedian who would tour... I don't know, probably at least 30 weeks of the year, maybe 40 weeks of the year, because obviously in Australia to do stand-up, you've got to be moving around. Um, her and I caught up and she was absolutely bereft at not performing but also loving being at home. Mm. She's like, I hadn't realised, you know, how hard it is to not be home. You know, she's got a young child, so the re-entry issues that you get when you come home from two is like a FIFO worker, you know, or like some military <laughs> worker or something like yeah. re-entering the house yeah. um, after you've been away. So, you know, I think it's been a mixed bag for some people. They've been able to pivot as mm. well and kind of go, all right, like I've just started a new podcast. I think a few different people have started up new things like that as an outlet. Um, but look, I'm rambling. It's a shit show. Well, before you go on, Rob, can you tell us about your new podcast? May as well, may as well do some cross promotion while we're here. Yeah. We'll mention it, of course, as well, and put a link up. But um, just tell oh, us about, about that. Oh well, I mean, you know, just just between us three and the Triple R listeners, this is my mental health plan, guys. Um, <laughs> so I have decided, long term, one thing I will take out of Corona, 
and it being sort of transitioning in carer and corona, who knows what's what, is that I do actually need to have some outlet for my skills um, and my talents if I can be so bold. So also I'd like to talk to some grown-up human people uh, at least <laughs> once a week. So I decided I was doing homeschool with my seven-year-old and teaching her about bloody nouns, person, place and thing, and I thought, ah, that might be a good idea to talk to interesting people just about a person, a place and a thing that they love. Oh, a, a, yeah. Just a bit of an antidote to the bloody, you know, despair that many of us are going through now. Um, just talk to people, like, where do you find your comfort? Yeah, and, and, and you know, I've listened. To, I listened to the first two. I think you've just put up a third one. Um, I haven't listened to that one yet, but it is, it is a really great format. You know, so hearing someone talking about a place that means a lot to them, a person that means a lot to them, and a thing that means a lot to them. You know, it's a really, it's a really nice way to find out about a person. You know, it's and uh, it, well, it's. Steve, I, I, I love I love listening to conversations, and it's. A I, I do too, and I think the nature of weirdly, which doesn't I won't go into, but a lot of my comedy work has ended up being in health promotion, and I've done in quite serious areas, mental health, family violence, even child abuse, things like that. Um, so a lot of the people I'm talking to are serious, mm. but also have joy. Like mm. the most recent person I interviewed was Rosie Batty. Mm. Now, what's Rosie Batty? Where does she go for mm. comfort? You know, mm. what thing does she like? Like it's lovely and you see their face light up talking about things they love rather than, Rosie, you have to be serious now mm. and talk about this mm. thing we all know you for. Yeah. Um, what's the name of the show, Nelly? It's called Person, Place and Thing. Oh, fantastic. It's also a great title, too. Thank you. That's a great title. No one's recognised the noun thing yet. Like, I don't know who, where all the homeschoolers are. I thought all the homeschooling parents would immediately go, oh, shit, she's been doing nouns. I, I, I don't even know what a noun is. I went through the education system at that time when the government, <laughs> you know, put it in the hands of social workers and they decided reading, writing and arithmetic is a waste of time. Uh, and so, you know, I went through the whole, I, I, I can't spell, I don't know what a noun is. Mind it's you, a I naming word, Dale, it's a naming word. But yeah. I can do maths, though. Like, ask me, ask me what eight eights are. Sixty-four. Oh, you're almost as quick as me. <laughs> <laughs> you bring it. I am. Oh, you can you quickly. Are. I've been homeschooling all year. Go for it, <laughs> Stephen. Four hundred thirty-two divided by nine. Nelly, um, <laughs> where do you see the arts heading, say in a year's time? Let's just say. The current situation continues. It'll, I hope it'll change. But let's just say it is where it is now. Mm. How do you see it morphing? Um, I think the hard thing in, in, in answering that is the arts. So the, I know you two love a bit of class-based chat and I will bring it because I'm a, I'm a working-class girl. And the comedy in the arts is, is the poor trailer trash of the arts, right? So the Australia Council have no comedy section as oh, really? one example, right? Oh. So within the arts, we're sort of looked down upon as the low arts, um, which is a long way of saying I don't think a lot of support will come our way yeah. because I think some protection, it looks like, and I haven't read the detail, but it looks like from the packages that have been um, put out there that some of the, the high arts, your opera, your dance, your ballet, will be offered something of a lifeline Mm. Um, whether that filters down um, to comedy is, is questionable. One of the difficult things I've seen in my industry as well is that 
people who were already doing relatively well. So someone like me who's got an ABN, is registered for GST, um, can demonstrate uh, loss of income of a significant amount over 12 months, you know, job keeper, someone like me and colleagues comparable or higher up than me can get job keeper, for example. Mm. That's not most of the industry. Mm. Most of the industry will be doing, you know, four weeks working at this bar and maybe a roadie and then a couple of gigs here and they are nowhere. So I think for some of them, sadly, we will lose them. Mm, I've got the package in front of me. You're quite right. It's 75 million for competitive grants to set up big things like festivals, concerts, tours. Um, 35 million for financial assistance to funded organisations to stay viable. That's going to be your theatres, dance, music, your circuses, all those big things yeah. like that. That's not the individual performers. 90, although I suppose they'll get jobs if they stay viable. 90 million in concessional loans to help fund new productions. Again, that's going to be the big ticket items. It's not going to be a stand-up comedians. And 50 and then the other, the fourth bit of it in terms of the highlights is $50 million to help film and television producers who have been unable to access insurance due to COVID to secure. So that's something to keep that, that industry going. Um, it's hard to imagine it filtering that much to the individuals. And, but the other big p- picture thing for me is $250 million in an industry that we looked um, – we talked about the figures in a previous podcast too, Rob. It's like, mm. it's like a $6 billion industry. What is it? Can you remember the it numbers? It was $117 billion. Oh, oh $117 billion. And it's getting a quarter of a billion dollars. So that's quarter, less yeah. than a quarter of a percent. Yeah. That's some loose change. And, it really is. You know, I think when you, when you add that up, um, plus you have the, you know – astronomical rise in the cost of arts degrees, which which sounds tangential but is not, you know, for for the performing arts and certainly for, I think it would be hard to find a comedian who doesn't have an arts degree. Um, I think the thing that worries me is that it's down, it's people immediately now, but it's also five and ten years down the track. When you think of big superstars, I mean, I don't know, an Eric Banner would be an example. You know, that's him... 20, 30 years ago would have been those performers now that we're at risk of losing. You Can know? I ask, flip you again, just to a slightly different topic, even though we've touched on it a bit, but oh. with all, you know, given that we're psychiatrists and we look at it all from the, you know, through the psychiatry lens, you know, you're a mental health fan and advocate of mental health. You know, what have you noticed from the public, from your side of the fence of the impact oh. of all this on mental health? Oh, it's huge. Um, I, the other day, so I had uh, our heater broke down and I had a, um, a tradie had to come in the house. Now, from my, like, again, let's look at this sort of death by a thousand cuts that Corona feels like, I honestly spent the morning stressing about how close I, you know, with him coming into the house, mm. how much to talk to it. You know, I'm a talker, I'm gregarious, so there's that. Uh, he came in the house, he fixed the heater. I had a chat to him. And I asked him how his mental health was going. <laughs> so I, I just do that kind of thing. <laughs> He's a young guy, 20-something-year-old guy. And, you know, we had a chat and he said a couple of things that I found really interesting. One was that he felt a lot better since footy had come back on the TV, so the men's AFL. Yeah, that's our equivalent of schools restarting, yep. Yeah, he was just beside himself. Like, he was so happy about it. I'm not a footy yep. fan. You know, it's not something that brings me comfort, but I could viscerally see, mm. that speaking of things that you love, how much of an impact it had on him. And the other thing he said was he talked to me about a friend, a couple of friends, but one in particular, who had just started to feel better because the gyms had opened up. 
So I know, you know, both of you have talked on previous podcasts about how complex health is, that it's not just coronavirus, it's also mental health. And this guy was basically saying his friend had suffered serious depression throughout his life. The thing that had, you know, quote unquote saved him was was working out, you know, was going to the yep. gym. And I kind of stupidly went, oh, why doesn't he go for a run? He said, because he doesn't want to lose weight. You know, he's trying to buy all the, I don't understand it. But the point was, it really made me think, reinforce what you two have said before, which is that we can't just look at this from one point of view. Um, even just thinking about that one young guy, if he can't go to the gym, he's actually at risk. Hmm? Yep, absolutely. Hmm. Couldn't agree more. I don't know what the answer to that is, mind you, um, particularly sitting here as someone you know, I don't want to go too much into chronic fatigue syndrome, but there's a lot of experts now who think it should be referred to as post-viral syndrome. Um, it is a clear and present danger to me. Like, I understand. I have seen what a virus can do mm. to a person. This is not hypothetical, mm. you know. So how you weigh all this up, honestly, I don't know. I've certainly seen in my own community, and I include myself in this, people have lost it. It's put huge strain on friendships, relationships, um, collegiate relationships, like a whole range of things. And then at other times people come good, mm, yeah. you know, but it's a corona coaster. It is. And, but my, and my gut feeling is we, you know, the more we can get back to normality of gyms being open, pubs, but even if it's just for 20 people. Um, you know, I went to the gym for the first time this week. I'm the same with the footy. You know, I, even though I don't like um, really the Bulldogs in Sydney, I watched them play last night. Um, yeah. You know, those things, I don't know, It's even if I don't like it, it's that sense of normality. It's and so normality, getting that, yeah. It's getting that balance right between doing it in a safer way as possible. And it's about structure. You know, one of the things that, that we... Um, hold uncertainty at bay with is having a structure and things that we can expect and predict in our life and that gives mm. a structure and certainty and that's really really useful so yeah look I, I totally understand the gym thing although I just... I, can I ask you two a question as the qualified shrinks in the room is it, it strikes me in broad terms that the only way they're going to get us to follow the freaking rules is if we're scared because it showed, like, what I noticed, as soon as the restrictions were eased, as soon as we could go back to school, that's when the wheels fell off in terms of people had been so vigilant, not everyone, but people had been generally vigilant, and now it's like, oh, no, everything's cool. Yeah, I, I think it's a mixture of a few things. I think it's being informed is one thing. I think you've got to be a little bit sort of worried about things. I don't think you want to over-worry and you don't want to punish people either. Mm. And we're incredibly lucky in Australia, and Steve and I have talked about this too, and I think you have as well, Nellie, that we do have this collective community spirit a lot of the time and we can galvanise around an issue and really work towards it. And we've done that really well compared to a lot of other places. So, you know, I reckon it's a few things. But just to pick up on, on one point that you made before, Nellie, which I... Yeah, you're, you're speaking to me. It's about the, the notion of health. And I think it's the start of a conversation of what health is about because too often we silo it into, you know, this is mental health, this is physical health, this is education, this is sport. You know, I think that is, that is so last century. It's such an antiquated way of thinking about things. Our notion of, of what well-being and health is has got to change. And I think the virus 
and all the implications of that is bringing it into sharp relief. But it's just the very start of the conversation. And I'd add to that too. You know, that's another thing the virus has taught us. Like, who would have thought that kids going to school was a key part of being fuel for the economy? Yeah. That, you know, that did so. You know, these things are so interrelated. But the only other thing I'd add to your point, though, about fear, I agree with fear helps, but it's it's not a major driver. I think you've got to remember that the reason people bounced back to old habits is because it's actually only been three months. The average person's about 35 years old. So, you know, three months of these changes is a drop in the ocean. And to get significant behavioural change normally requires um, repeated effort over about six to 12 months. So if you're trying to change any behaviour, you don't expect to um, bang it on the head in three months. So I'm not surprised people bounced back. I think they will learn, but it'll take six to 12. Steve, I reckon your point before, I really picked up on it, about you've run a marathon and now you're being told to run another marathon. And by the way, there could be five more marathons to run and you just get fatigued you know i think it's fatigue and it's also that idea of going um you know when you're trying for behavior change like let's say you're trying to lose weight or you want to exercise more or you want to meditate or something there's a clear uh and a, a visceral feeling of reward at the end yeah. of it the difficulty with this is kind of going and then what <laughs> What do you mean? Like, so I don't, you know, I see, I know you're not a hugger, Steve. I'm, I'm a massive hugger. Okay. Take the hug. Next time I see you, Steve. So I won't do it. But, you know, what, so I stop hugging people, but then what? You know, like, I'm not going to drop five kilos. What? (laughs) Like, there's nothing, I mean, I don't mean this, so don't bloody email me, but there's nothing in it for me. I feel like is the is part of the conversation that's happening in the community. So, yeah, what you're saying, Nelly, is um, that what I think you're saying, tell me if I'm wrong, is that if we do everything right, nothing happens. That's the idea that nothing happens, which is a weird outcome to aim for, isn't it? Or even more so, and again, I think, I don't know if it's personality or the fact that I've got a a kid with this illness, um, but I'm so hyper aware of, of the consequences where I feel like, for some members of the community, it's kind of like, well, I probably won't even get that sick. So, you know, it's, it's like well, I have to give up all these things and I don't even get anything yeah. out of it. And the frustration and part of the, the mental health load for me is kind of going, do I need to show you someone on chemo? Yeah. Yeah. You know, do you need, like, what will make you believe that this is real for people? Yeah. Yeah. Nelly, we, um, we could talk for hours. Um, uh, but we've got to wind up. Now, this is a question we ask everybody, as you know. Um, what's one thing you're doing better now compared to pre-corona time? I'm so glad you've asked me this because I don't want to end on me banging on about chemo and being hysterical. Forgive me. Um, <laughs> the thing that I have done, this is miraculous, speaking of behaviour change. Like, I have spent 46 years avoiding exercise and for the first <laughs> time in my life, like, I am walking if not every day, at least five days a week for at least an hour because I am so bloody desperate to get out of the house. And even if I'm just waving to a stranger at the dog park, I feel, you know, elated. That's true. So hopefully that will stick. That's not, and you know, you need to walk that amount just to listen to all the podcasts. There's so many, good pod, <laughs> you know, because there are so many great podcasts that have started so up, which is many. good and bad because of all the competition. But well, I'm great. rationing, yeah. based on your advice, Dr. Steve, I am rationing my news. 
So I walk, I allow myself half an hour of news in the morning from Radio yep. National just so Beautiful. that I know what's going on and then half hour podcast. Hey, Nellie, well, I hope that uh, your rationing and all of the great thinking and thought that you're putting into this and the work that you're doing with your podcast and all the other stuff you've been doing along the lines, it's certainly helped me too, keeps you as sane as possible. Um, <laughs> and uh, thank you so much for joining us on Shrink the Virus this week. Oh, my pleasure. And can I honestly, hand on heart, thank both of you for doing this podcast because it really has made a, a significant difference to my mental health and I'm not bullshitting you. Like it actually has calmed me down um, a lot at various points, especially when early on when it was really peaking. My anxiety was really peaking. So I appreciate it and uh, love your work. Thank you so much for <laughs> saying that. So Cheers. Much, Cheers. Ciao. So that was Nellie Thomas, author, comedian, all-round great person, social commentator, you name it, you've just heard her, um, on our show Shrink the Virus. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, and of course, as we always say, even if you didn't, don't forget to tell your friends and subscribe. Um, we've got a Facebook page uh, called Shrink the Virus. We're also on Instagram, Twitter, you can find us. We've got an email, shrinkthevirus at gmail.com. And we love feedback. Rob, do you want to thank the good folks at Triple R and all that stuff? Yeah, yeah, look, I don't forget to tune into Triple R at any time, any time really, through Triple R, but especially on Sunday mornings at 10am when you might catch our radio show called Radiotherapy. Thank you so much to all the people, and this is a real heartfelt thanks uh, to everybody at Triple R who's helped us along the way, and that's Beck, Mia, Grace, Elizabeth, and Michael. And I guess for, uh, that, you, in fact, right now you can jump off the and I was going to say, I've got all my time wrong now. I was about to say, because it's Friday morning, you know, which show to catch on Triple R, because that's what I do. I love Friday mornings. But I've just realised you won't be listening to this on Friday morning. So shut your stupid mouth, Steve, and just get on with saying goodbye. Bye, everyone. We love you. Thanks for listening to Strength the Virus. Uh, um, we'll see you again next week. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.